Corner Fringe Ministries presents Daniel Joseph and the Story of a Blind Man. Enjoy! Today we are going to look at a story found in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John. It's a story of Yeshua. He, he heals a man of his blindness. Now, what's so interesting about this particular story is that this is one of the rarer, one of the more unique stories found in all of the Gospels, in the sense that there's a lot of details given to us. There's a plethora of information. There's a, there's a much larger storyline, uh, something we typically don't find among other miracles that are recorded within the Gospels. Typically what we see, right, is Yeshua goes out, someone either comes to him, man or woman, or he goes to them, and what happens? We read about it, well, he heals them. But what comes after that? Well, not a whole lot. We're not just, just not given details. It is not so with today's story. In today's story, we're given many details, including the effects that this miracle would have, not just on the man himself, but rather the effect that the miracle is going to have on others who witness the miracles, on the leaders of the day. And within these details, we're going to learn so much about the faith. It's very powerful. So with that said, I want to take you to the ninth chapter of John, verse 1. We read, Now as Yeshua passed by, he saw a man who was, bo- uh, who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, right off the bat, the first thing I want you to identify here is the perspective of the apostles. Notice the apostles here, they didn't question the fact that this man's blindness was a result of sin. There was no question in their mind in regard to this. The only question they had was, whose sin is responsible for this blindness? Was it the, was it the result of the parents? Or was it was the result of the man himself? Because in their mind, the blindness was attributed to sin. That's what it was. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, how exactly did apostles ever arrive at a conclusion like this? Was this some form of rabbinical tradition that had crept in that they were accepting? Or is this scriptural? Well, let's go to the Word and see. In Exodus 20, verse 5, we read the following, For I, the Lord, your God, this is part of the Ten Commandments. We read them every Shabbat. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. You get that? On those who hate me. So here we have a scenario. The Lord's talking to us. He's actually showing us the sin of the fathers can trickle down all the way into the third and fourth generations. You wonder why now they're actually asking who sinned, this man or the parents. It's a good question, right? Let me show you another verse where it would apply to the man himself. Exodus 15, 26. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, okay, you obey him, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Well, here was the promise in Exodus. You do things well, If you obey me, if you serve me, these things aren't going to happen to you. Again, you can see why these men are, did this man sin? Is his blindness a result of his own sin? You know? 
The simple point I'm making here is that you can see why the apostles would carry such a perspective. However, despite all of this, Yeshua is going to go on to answer this question, and he's going to take them by surprise. Look at what he says. Yeshua answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So we find in this unique and very particular scenario, the reason this man was born blind, it had nothing to do with either this man sinning or his parents sinning. He was born blind for the sole purpose that God was to be glorified, so that the works of God could literally be manifested through him. And it's passages like this that help us throw caution to the wind in regard to us going out and judging others uh, and, and looking upon their tribulation, looking at their suffering, and coming to the immediate conclusion that, well, that's because they're a sinner. When in fact that suffering, I caution you, that suffering may be the result of God's ultimate will. That that individual may be, may be um, that the work of God may be flow through him so that God could be glorified. That may be the scenario. We have scriptural examples of this. Think about Job. Think about the life of Job. What happened in Job? Job went through horrific tribulation. And what did his friends come and do? They essentially came and pointed the finger back at him. Alluding to the fact that, hey, you're the problem, Job, when nothing could be farther from the truth. It had nothing to do with Job or Job's sinning. It had to do with the fact that God wanted to be glorified, and he was glorified through Job's tribulation. There are other examples I could give, such as Apostle Paul. He went through tribulation, physical ailments. People could come up and say, ah, he's stricken by God. But obviously, that is not the case, Right? He was, he, was, uh, he was being dealt with so to, to be humbled. I mean, we don't know the reasons. Timothy's another one. The bottom line is you just want to tread very, very carefully in regard to assessing the situation of others. Don't look down upon those who suffer with contempt, but rather stick to fearing God. That's your happy place, you understand? Resonate there. Stay there. And even Scripture supports this. Leviticus 19.14, you shall not curse the deaf nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. This is our calling. We are called to fear the Lord. Going back to John 9, verse 4, we continue in our story. Yeshua says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it was day. Now let me just ask you, what are the works of Yeshua? It was the awesome miracles that he went out performing. These are the works he's alluding to. In fact, if you go back a couple chapters to John chapter 5, Yeshua makes an interesting statement. Remember, John the Baptist, the whole point of John's ministry was to come out and to bear witness of the light. That was John the Baptist's ministry. He was a witness to prove Yeshua is who he says he is. And yet Yeshua comes on the scene in John chapter 5 and says, I have a greater witness than John. The works that I do, they bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And what are these works? They're the miraculous things that Yeshua did in his ministry. With that in mind, let's reread. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground. And what's he going to do? He's going to do some works. He made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Moving on to verse 7. And he said to him, Yeshua said to the blind man, 
Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So here we have Yeshua healing a man of blindness. Obviously, this is beyond extraordinary. This is completely supernatural. This was the miraculous power of God. Now, I want to point out that notice here, this miracle was not just a great act of power. It wasn't just a great display of power. What do I mean is this, is that it wasn't Yeshua coming out and grabbing some inanimate object and blasting it on fire or saying to a mountain, mountain, be lifted up and ascend into the heavens. Now, certainly, if Yeshua came on the scene, all the witnesses saw him command the mountain to be lifted up into heaven, that would have dropped everyone to their knees. That would have been awesome, Right? Would that not show the display of power and authority? That's not what Yeshua does. What does he do? He uses his power, he uses authority to help a man in bondage. Think about that. Yeshua has compassion on him. He heals him of his blindness. This is the essence of Yeshua's ministry. The essence of Yeshua was to go out and show compassion. The essence of Yeshua was to go out and show mercy, to show love, to help those who couldn't help themselves, and not just that, nor any other man. Clearly, nobody could help this blind man. Nobody made him see. And yet Yeshua comes on the scene and commands it to be so. That is awesome. Understand something. This is exactly... This is exactly, this type of activity was exactly what the Jewish people were waiting for. They were expecting people to receive their sight with the coming of the Mashiach. Let me offer some proof of this in various sources. I want to take you to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And by looking at this, this is really going to build into this story. This is going to give you some backdrop and some appreciation. But if I take you to the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the most critical texts found in the caves of Qumran was a scroll by the name of 4Q521. Okay? It was in the fourth cave of Qumran. It's commonly known as the Messianic Apocalypse. You won't find this in your, in your Bible. This was one of the fragments, one of the scrolls found in the Dead Sea Scroll find. Now keep in mind that the, the scholars are dating this 100 to anywhere 130 years before Yeshua's ministry. All right? And within this scroll, we find characteristics, expectations of what the Mashiach was to look like, what the Messiah would do when he came. Very important scroll because it gives you insight. Hey, this is what the Jewish people were waiting for. Well, what does it look like? What does the Messiah look like? Well, let me read to you some of this scroll. Will you not find the Lord in this, all those who hope in their heart? For the Lord seeks the pious and calls the righteous by name. Over the humble, his spirit hovers, and he renews the faithful in his strength. For he will honor the pious upon the throne of his eternal kingdom. Now it's going to go on to give these characteristics. Release the captives, open the eyes of the blind. The characteristics, the things that the Jewish people were waiting for, to which they would identify the Messiah, were these things. This is what he was to come. He was to come and release the captives, open the eyes of the blind, lifting up those who are oppressed, and forever I shall hold fast to the hopeful and the pious. And we continue. Or not. 
verse 11. And the Lord shall do glorious things which have not been done. Now keep in mind, I want to stop here. He's going to do glorious things. That, let this resonate in your heart because this is going to come into play within our story in John chapter 9. This was the expectation. Messiah comes on the scene. He's going to do things never been done before. All right? Just as he said, for he shall heal the critically wounded. He shall raise the dead. He shall bring good news to the poor. He shall lead the holy ones and the hungry. He shall enrich. Think about it. All these attributes that are mentioned right here regarding what the Jewish people were expecting to see when the Mashiach came, Yeshua did them all. He fulfilled the expectation to the T. He did all of these things. He healed the critically wounded. He did raise the dead. He brought good news to the poor, and he gave the blind sight. All of these expectations manifested in one man, the man Yeshua. Now, this isn't the only source we have, but we also have biblical source to back this up, to back up this expectation of what the Jewish people were waiting for. As we come to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, we read the following. So he came to Nazareth, this means Yeshua. Yeshua came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And here's what happens. They hand him the book, the scroll of Isaiah. Yeshua unrolls the scroll, and he goes to a specific part, Isaiah 61. And what does it say? It says this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what we read, what the Jews were expecting in the Messianic Apocalypse. Preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovery of sight to the blind. This is what he was sent for. This is the very thing we see happening in John chapter 9. We continue. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What is Yeshua's ministry? It is to set us free. Amen? One of the worst things anyone, including myself, could possibly ponder in this life is the idea of being held captive with no hope in sight, being held prisoner without any power to free yourself, without question. This is the most horrifying set of circumstances that man could face, right? Understand something. Satan has gone out and done just that. He has taken captives. He has taken prisoners. And understand, he will never let them go. Ever. That is not what he does. He gets you, and he never lets go. Let me prove this. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You who weaken the nations. Jumping ahead to verse 17, pay close attention. Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities. Who did not open the house of his prisoners. The very description of saying he will not open the door for his prisoners. Understand that about our enemy. He will never do it. Once you are held captive by Satan, there's one expectation. Total oppression. 
you are condemned to a lifetime of oppression. He will not show you compassion. He will not show you mercy. He will torment you, and he will consume you until you die his prisoner. And he's going to do this through drugs. And he's going to do this through alcohol. He will do it through pornography. He will do it through adultery. He will do it in all the various forms of addiction known to man. Because you, he wants you as, your, as his slave. A slave to abuse. A slave to inflict, inflict pain and sorrow. Holding you hostage to the dictates of your own heart. Getting you to embrace hatred for your brother. Making sure you never forgive those who have sinned against you. He wants you to hold on to bitterness. He wants you to pursue all the things that the world has to offer you. Why? Because he wants you to be a slave. He wants to torment you, and in the end, he wants to kill you. He is very, very powerful. Understand, you do not have the power to fight the likes of Satan apart from Yeshua. You do not have it. You are outgunned. You are outmatched. There is only one hope and it is Yeshua. He alone has the power. If you want to experience freedom, if you want to be set free, it can happen. No matter how hopeless your situation may appear, you go to Yeshua, he will command Satan to let you go. Amen? All authority is the Lord's. It is in Yeshua's hands. Let me give you a brief example of this power, of this authority, of this oppression And this is going to build upon John chapter 9. Going to Luke chapter 13, this is what we read. Verse 11. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no ways raise herself up. But when Yeshua saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. That is so powerful. He spoke and it was. That's it. Satan had her, and he spoke, you are loose from your infirmity. And we go on in verse 13. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Yeshua had healed on the Sabbath. Just interestingly enough, our passage, our story today in John chapter 9, Yeshua does the miracle, he gives the blind man sight on Shabbat. And here we find Yeshua heals this woman on Shabbat. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. And we continue in verse 15. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, Make no mistake, this woman that was suffering the spirit of infirmity, bent over, she was bound by the evil one, bound by Satan. Think of it, for 18 years be loosed from this bond on Shabbat. And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. This is the power, this is the authority of our Lord Yeshua. This is the very definition of compassion. This is the definition of mercy. So let's get back to our story with this backdrop, going back with John chapter 9, verse 8. We're going to find that Yeshua healing this blind man, well, it causes quite a stir. 
Verse 8, therefore the neighbors and those previously had seen that he was blind said, is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, well, he's like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? No doubt this is the question to ask. This is the question I would ask. How did your eyes get opened? We know you were blind. We go on to verse 11. He answered and said, A man called Yeshua made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him uh, who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Okay, so now he's being taken to the leaders of to the day because something crazy has just happened to this man. So they take him to the leaders, and in verse 14 we read, Now it was the Sabbath when Yeshua made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Really simple for this guy. He's so easy. He goes on. Therefore, some, and I want to emphasize, notice here, and the way it's translated here is accurate to the Greek. Not all of the Pharisees. It says, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, it's just interesting, the perspective. I want to point this out. It's something I covered in my Shabbat series that... To a Jew, a first century Jew, a Pharisee or not a Pharisee alike, one of the ways they would identify you as being a servant of God was Shabbat. Failure to keep Shabbat, they would, well, then you couldn't be from God. Why? Because you don't keep Shabbat. This is one of the ten big ones. This is the Aseret HaDevarim. If you don't keep Shabbat, you're a sinner. Now look at what happens. Now, though the Pharisees' assessment of whether or not Yeshua kept Shabbat was wrong, look at the statement of others who did not agree with the Pharisees. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? I want to point out here, did you see what they said? The people who disagree with the Pharisees, the people who believed in Yeshua, who believed that he is authentic, the healing was authentic, what did they say? How can a man who is a sinner. In other words, they too agree, hey, you don't keep Shabbat, what would it be? Lawlessness is sin. Sin is lawlessness. Fascinating, uh, just as a side note here. But here we get into, and there was a division among them. This powerful, mighty, glorious act of love, of compassion, caused division amongst his own people. We go on to verse 17. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said he is a prophet. So when this guy is put on the spot by these leaders, in regard to who Yeshua is, he answers he's a prophet. Was his assessment correct? Did this man correctly assess the situation? I can tell you emphatically he did. Was Yeshua not a prophet? He was a prophet. He wasn't just any prophet. He was the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18. The prophet like unto Moshe, unto Moses. He was prophet, he was priest, he was king. 
We continue in verse 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? I'm going to verse 20. His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. Verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that he was Mashiach, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. This is fascinating. Shows you. Get the context. Grip this, if you will. The leadership, the, the reverence that the children of Israel had for the leaders of the day for the Pharisees, to the point that the parents know their son has been healed, but they don't want any part of this because they are petrified of the leaders. And they know the leaders have already said, you confess this guy as the Mashiach, and what did we already establish? We already established what they were looking for, what the coming of the Mashiach would do. He would open the eyes of the blind. And the parents want nothing to do with this. They're petrified. They don't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. You're thrown out of the synagogue, guess what? You're the off-scourging. You're cast out. You might as well be a Samaritan. You're being cast out. And we go into verse 24. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. One of the most perverse and vile things that you see Satan doing century after century, time after time, is exactly what you've just seen here. Notice the first part of this statement. I'm referring to the Pharisee statement that give God the glory. Now the statement would appear to be righteous, right? As though they're advocating righteousness. But yet, the very next thing they say, we know that this man is a sinner. So they command this man, think about this, what's happening. They command him, hey, give glory to God, and in the same breath, call Yeshua a sinner. That's what they're doing. It's exactly what's going on. Make no mistake, this is exactly what Satan wants. This is what Satan peddles. He wants man to buy into the fact, hey, give God glory apart from the Lord Yeshua. It's one of the most twisted deceptions ever conceived by Satan. You cannot, this is so important you understand this, you cannot give God glory apart from Yeshua. Cannot happen. Yeshua is the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. Understand the principles that we've been given, that have been laid out through Yeshua's own words, the testimony of the apostles. Listen, if you have heard Yeshua, you have heard the Father. If you've seen Yeshua, you've seen the Father. If you have Yeshua, if you believe in Him, you believe in the Father. This is truth. So how does this man respond to the rabbi's statement here? Well, let's continue in verse 25. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. And he's just being honest. He goes, I don't know the history of this guy. I don't know anything. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. This man 
had an experience with God. He knew Yeshua was the direct result of that experience. And he wasn't going to be persuaded otherwise. Even though the Pharisees they were attempting to coerce him into rejecting Yeshua, attempting to entice them, him to call Yeshua a sinner, this man doesn't fall for it, but rather clings to what he knows to be true. His intimate experience with God, the fact that he experienced the power of God, the fact that he experienced the love of Yeshua, told him otherwise. He wasn't going to be persuaded. And we go to verse 26. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? (laughs) Can you see what's happening here? He's pushing back. He is now starting to push back. Well, the Pharisees, they don't like this. Look at what happens next. Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. Now listen to how the man responds to this. In verse 29, or verse 30 rather, the man answered and said to them, Why? This is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now, when you read this man's response, there's a prophecy that immediately comes to life in in the mind. It is something we read at every Passover. It is something that is literally quite being fulfilled right here in this passage. This statement, okay, get the context of what's happening here. The Pharisees, the leaders of the day, they're rejecting Yeshua. They're calling him a sinner. The response of the man to the Pharisees that they don't know where he's from is that this is a marvelous thing. You are witnessing prophecy unfold right before your eyes. And let me show you this passage we read every year at Passover. Psalm 118.22 The stone, meaning Yeshua, which the builders, meaning the Pharisees, rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Exactly what this man said. In fact, when you see that, uh, that, that part of Psalms translated in the Septuagint, the Greek that's used, it is the same as the Greek here. Amazing. This man calls out, it is marvelous in our eyes, and he's looking at the builders who have rejected the stone. Amazing. Now, ironically enough, the man goes on to teach the teachers. It's my favorite part of the story. To teach the teachers a thing or two about truth. And look at what he says in John 9.31. Now we know that God does not hear sin. It's almost like you can watch him step up to the podium and move his hands out. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. What did the Messianic apocalypse say? What was one of the expectations? He would do things that no one else had ever done. And this is exactly what the man identifies. He has done something that no one has done. It is unheard of. He obviously is the Mashiach. He's calling it out. Furthermore, let me take it a step further. You want to see the character, the nature of the Lord Yeshua. In Psalm 146, it says that it is the Lord, Yahweh, is yod heh vav 
It is the Lord who opens the eyes of the blind. The tetragrammaton is used. And you find that's the same tetragrammaton that you find in Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 33 that spoke of the branch of righteousness, the Mashiach that was to come. What would his name be? Yahweh. Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. Yahweh-Zakenu. The Lord our righteousness. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And we continue in verse 33. He says, If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Verse 34. Oh, there we go. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in your sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. The Pharisees were appalled that this man would have the audacity to attempt to teach them anything. And yet the very principles that this man covers, that he conveyed to these leaders of the day, they were right on. He taught the teacher's truth. Now this is extremely powerful. So much so that I want to go back and I want to look at what this man says a little bit closer. Because make no mistake, we can glean from what he just taught. We can glean from this. One of the first things that he shared with us, one of the first principles was this. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. The man just revealed in this statement, in verse 31, and then continues to say, but if anyone's a worshiper of God, he does as well, he hears him. He just revealed the secret to having an open communication with God. Not just that, but we're also given information at how that communication is cut off. Vital information to possess for us believers in Yeshua. Notice here that he states that God does not hear sinners. Therefore, you need to understand, you can devote your life to the study of the word. You can devote your life to doing good works. You can devote your life to prayer. And I'm going to tell you, according to what this man says and according to what Scripture says, it is all vanity. It is all vanity if you are living in sin. If you are habitually in bondage, if you are practicing sin. And let me tell you something, that reality should terrify you. Because our only hope, I want you to ponder this for a second. This is going to come into view for you. Our only hope, as men and women on this earth, we have one hope, and that is our communication with Yeshua. It's relationship to Yeshua. That is our hope. You cut off that communication, you're done. You're gone. Let me share with you some scriptures that support what this man just said and the fact that God does not hear sinners. And let this sink into your heart. Proverbs 123, Turn at my rebuke, surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel, and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. Terrifying passage to know that I could cry out to Yeshua and he will laugh at my calamity. He will mock when my terror comes. Verse 27. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, 
but they will not find me, verse 29, because, why can't he be found? What happened to the communication? There is no communication. Why? Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. Your hope is cut off. When you embrace your sins, this is the fear, this is the trembling to take you out of your sins. Because when the day comes and calamity starts happening, he's not going to hear you. If you were one of the ones described here, you have no hope without that communication, without that intimacy, without that relationship with Yeshua. That is the hope. You cut that off, it's over. We go on, Proverbs 28. Listen to what Proverbs 28 says. Verse 9. One who turns away his ear from hearing the Torah, even his prayer is an abomination. You turn your back on God, God turns his back on you. This is horrifying. Isaiah 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. In other words, Do not even interpret, not for a second, that the Lord is not mighty enough to save you, to help you. Don't even go there. Verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. This lines up perfectly with what the once blind man was saying to the teachers of the law when he said in verse 31, we know that God does not hear sinners. Now, fortunately, this isn't all the man has to say. He goes on in the passage to give good news, to give the secret to relationship, to having a good communication with the Lord. And what is that? He says, if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. So if we do the will of God, if our hearts are broken for those things which please him, this man tells us that God will hear us. Okay, it's nice to know that this man says it, but what does Scripture say? Well, it says the exact same thing, Psalms 4.3. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Psalm 34.15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. This is who the Lord is willing to hear from. This is, the, this is who the Lord is willing to habitate with to be in relationship with. 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is the promise. This is hope. This is our hope rests in this, but it lies upon you whether you want it or not. If you want it, you will do the things that are spoken here. Do you want relationship with Yeshua, really? Then you'll do the things that he commands. Proverbs 15, 29, just one more. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. If this doesn't give you an incentive to press into a deeper relationship with Yeshua, to sacrifice the things of the world, to sacrifice the lust of the flesh, you know what, I don't know what will. There are things that are going to take place in this nation, things which I already see beginning to happen. 
that are going to paralyze the inhabitants with fear. People are going to be overwhelmed with grief. They're going to be overwhelmed with sorrow. And one thing you need to make sure of is that God is listening to you at this time. More than ever before. You're going to want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt to have the comfort that when you go to your prayer closet, every word that you speak, spoke, is, is received from Yeshua. This is the time to get right with the Lord. Now is the time to humble ourselves in His sight. There isn't anything more beautiful, more magnificent than having the assurance of when I pray, the maker of heaven and earth is listening to me. There's nothing better. There's no greater hope. In fact, when describing the greatness of the nation of Israel, how Torah describes the greatness of the nation of Israel, look at what it says. This is amazing. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it? As the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason, we may call upon Him. Torah is talking about it. It elevates, it shows the beauty, the majesty of Israel. Why is she so beautiful? What is so majestic about this nation? For whatever reason, they can call upon God. Big or little, it doesn't matter. The beauty of the nation is relationship. They have the connection, the relationship to Yeshua. When we as servants of God listen to Him, we do the things that He commands us to do, in turn, Yeshua listens to us. It's a beautiful relationship. Could you imagine? Just think about how, how, how do marriages work out when there's no communication? It's the number one reason for divorce, ultimately, when there's no communication in a relationship, that relationship, that marriage dies. It dies from within inside. What do you think is going to happen with you and with Yeshua? If there is no communication, you're dead. You're as good as dead. We were made for this, right? What is our purpose on this earth? We were made to be in relationship with Yeshua. What is Satan's goal? To come in and to cut the communication. That's what he wants, right? Let's go back and finish up our story. We're almost done. Verse 35, Yeshua heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found them, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? Other versions say Son of Man. Same thing, doesn't matter. He answered and said, Who is he, Lord? Interesting. What does he say? He said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Yeshua said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. There's no question. You are the Mashiach. Any question of that? He bows down. He worships him. We continue in verse 39. Yeshua said, For judgment I have come into the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Yeshua said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. The story of this blind man, when you think about it, you step back, it has everything. It's a story of love, mercy, power. It's a story of obedience. It's a story of faith. It's a story of truth. All the elements that you come to know intimately when you commit your life to Yeshua, when you make the decision to serve Him in spirit and truth, when you do this, understand something. Stories like this 
will become reality in your life. Do you understand? Do you truly have the faith? Do you have hope or you have an intimate connection with Yeshua? Make no mistake, when you make that commitment, stories like this, they become reality. The Lord moves in your life. I'm a living example of this. Being healed in the past. I've experienced God on an intimate level. And it came through humbleness and brokenness of heart. That's it. That's the secret. Willing to turn from my wickedness. Confessing sins before Yeshua. Try it and see what happens with your whole heart. I'm going to close with the following passage. And it's interesting because it ties last week even into this week. Isaiah 58, we read, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Yaakov their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. But here's where it starts to come down. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your labors. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Verse 5, it is a fast. Is it a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush? And to spread out sackcloth and ashes, would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness? Pay close attention to what is being spoken here, because this is talking about being released from bondage, from the grip of the evil one. Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Go on to verse 7. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Verse 9. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. We call out and the Lord answers. Because we've turned, we've humbled ourselves. And we are doing, we are going out and showing love to our neighbor. We are feeding the hungry, clothing those who who are naked. Then your light shines forth, and it is then you will call and that the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness. Powerful, powerful. It's giving you the secret. The Lord is trying, he's crying out to you. Giving you the secret, you have the ability to step out of bondage. But it's up to you. We're going to end here for today. Shabbat Shalom.